0: Yeah, here's Kevin Polta. And if you could see me now, you would see me dancing. And it ain't a pretty sight, um, I'll tell you that. Um, but it is absolutely wonderful to be back talking to you through the Talking Biotech podcast. It's something that really I stumbled into last year just kind of as a fun activity, as a spin-off of what I do, that really I fell in love with more than um, many of the traditional scientific jobs as a researcher because this was about sharing the science that we're all doing. And I find I learn more from this than I do from many things. It's really cool to talk to the experts and listen to people share the passion of their stories about the science that they do. Um, my time away wasn't wasted. I'm working on book chapters and textbooks and um, lots of talks to farmer groups, um, talking to growers and producers and ranchers all over the United States. Um, my research group is doing really well. Um, I can't say um, enough about them, and we've just been very, very productive year in 2015 and great time in 2016. Um, What's really been cool is the opportunity to write for familiar audiences and take a break away from this medium to spend it in some other media. And and that's been really a productive time. But back to talking biotech. I think the theme for 2016, uh, 2015, it was um, moving innovation to application with communication. And I think the theme for this year is how do we ensure access to agricultural innovations so many of the innovations that we've seen in agriculture are sitting stagnant in in laboratories at universities or maybe never getting off the ground at companies because they would cost too much to deregulate and commercialize but how do we get these technologies into the hands of people who need them and whether you're a farmer in the industrialized world Or whether you're someone in the developing world who desperately needs specific nutrients, how can we as as a society and as potential communicators get people excited about sharing this technology with those people who can use it? And I think that's our goal now. I think we've moved beyond the simple idea of let's get out there and talk to let's be effective in the way we talk about science. And... What's really cool about today's podcast is you'll get to listen to two people who do this very well. The first is Dr. Harry Klee, who is a professor at the University of Florida, who uses biotechnology as a mechanism to breed, through traditional breeding, better tasting tomatoes, which we all agree are something that would be great. And the second part is Chelsea Boonstra, who's a student from University of Manitoba, who does a very nice job at communicating what her family's operation does and they do a dairy uh, mostly dairy uh, operation but also have some substantial acreage and uh, she does has a video that has gotten tremendous play and i'd love for you to see it listen to it here and enjoy the time listening to chelsea and her motivations so that's it for the introduction of talking biotech podcast number 24 And here we go. Okay, so I'm sitting here today with Dr. Harry Klee. He's a professor at the University of Florida here with me. And um, Harry's been on a lifelong quest to improve the tomato. Actually, probably, I don't know, has it been lifelong?
1: That's uh, been the last 15 years.
0: Last 15 years. Okay. So, <laughs> and, you know, That's a lifelong. Harry isn't. is not 15 years old. So. <laughs> um, but uh, the the good news is he's getting there, and we really wanted to talk. I wanted to talk about this today because it's a good example of how biotechnology and molecular technologies are being used to answer an important question about genetic improvement of plants and genetic improvement of food products. And it's not involving Transgenes. Isn't it meaning that we're not moving a trait by moving a gene uh, using the laboratory? This is good old-fashioned plant sex, but it is using biotechnology as an intermediary. And so, uh, Harry, thank you for spending some time today. You're welcome. The whole idea of this is that the tomato, apparently, uh, needs some improvements. So is it really broken?
1: Yes, it is. Uh, And it's the number one complaint of consumers in the supermarket today. Uh, The modern tomatoes really just don't have the flavor potential that, that old heirloom varieties have.
0: And so why don't we just have heirlooms in the grocery store?
1: So heirloom tomatoes are really hard to grow. They lack the disease resistances, the firmness, the the shelf life of the modern varieties, you could barely ship a a an heirloom tomato from your backyard to your house, let alone from Florida to New England in the wintertime. time. Uh, so, uh, basically, heirlooms taste great, but they're really hard to grow, and that's why they're heirlooms. Air, the definition of an heirloom in my mind is something that's really old, and we got something better. <laughs> Uh, but, but that's not totally true because what we've lost over the years is flavor. We, uh, the, the modern varieties have been selected for shelf life, uh, and and really critical to the equation, I think is the point that the modern grower has to make money. They're, you know, they're businessmen and they have to make money. The growers are not paid for flavor they're paid for yield and so uh the growers are doing what they have to do to make money which is to put red objects in a box and get them to the consumer uh so flavor is they're not paid for flavor it's as simple as that they're not paid for flavor so they don't really worry about it uh and and i should also combine that with the fact that flavor is really complicated We've identified 25 different chemicals that all contribute to flavor and breeders have not had the tools to select for good flavor or even maintain current flavor. And so what's happened over the years is basically through sort of benign neglect, flavor has deteriorated.
0: And so what is the strategy that your team has used to put the flavor back?
1: So I think, uh, very simply, uh, the process sounds simple. In practice, it's taken us a dozen years or more. Uh, We start with the consumer. uh, And and this is really completely unprecedented. Uh, We start at the opposite we're turning breeding on its head and we're saying let's start with the consumer we're lucky here we have a group called the plant innovation center Uh, we think that it's unique in the entire world uh, in the sense that we start with psychologists and food scientists that let us measure what is flavor what is good what does the consumer want and so we're starting from that point and working backwards to try and uh, and harness flavor uh, and give the consumer something they really want and we think that that will translate into better nutrition, better sales, uh, and everyone will be happy
0: and so this is really where the biotechnology side of this comes in that you know you have information on uh, which tomatoes people like, and you can go backwards and use by bi- um analytical chemistry to identify the compounds that are associated with consumer liking but then how do you then move this how do you get all of that into one tomato background what's the trick
1: well so it's a long process uh what we've done is we've started with about 400 different heirloom tomatoes we have got the complete genome sequences of those 400 varieties through a great collaboration with a group in, uh, in Beijing, China. Um, so we have the complete genome sequences of these 400 heirlooms. We've got a complete chemical analysis of all of those lines. And we've also taken about 100 of those and put them through consumer preference panels so i'll just walk you through the process we take those hundred varieties we give them to consumers uh we say how much do you like them then we grind them up and say what's in them you grind up the consumers (laughs) oops (laughs) i should be more precise uh we grind up the tomatoes that the consumers eat it's not this exact same ones, but, but a subset of them, uh, and uh, the ones that don't go in their mouths. We grind them up, we do the chemical analysis, and then we use statistics to basically extract out what's in the good ones, what's in the bad ones, and how do they correlate. So using that kind of information, we can put together basically a recipe for what is the great-tasting tomato. Uh, so that sort of defines the target. It tells us what are the chemicals we need to focus on and how much of them uh, should be in there to get a great tasting tomato. Uh, so then what we do is we take the next step. We go back to those genome sequences and um, I guess at this point I should uh, defer to Mendel and uh and so what Mendel did 150 years ago is to go through and score different kinds of traits in peas and he used that to determine the basis for genetics um Well, we're doing the same process. We're just using better tools than Mendel had. Uh, We're taking uh, all of those tomatoes that we have, the genome sequences, and we're taking all of the chemical analysis, and we're basically saying, show me the regions within the genome. Identify for me the genes that control each of those important flavor chemicals. And so in that way, we very simply map, say, at the top of chromosome 9, there's a region that controls compound X. And we go through logically, and we do that for all the chemicals. And we now have genetic loci that control almost all of the chemicals that we're interested in. Then what we do is we we go back and identify what are called alleles, and I always describe alleles to people as eye color. It's really easy for people to understand. Um, you have the allele that gives you blue eyes, brown eyes, hazel eyes, whatever. Uh, well, we're doing that for these chemicals. And we're basically identifying the alleles, the versions of each gene that are the most desirable in terms of our recipe for a great tasting tomato. Uh, so we identify all those alleles. Uh, we identify the best alleles. And then the process gets a little, well, it's, it's very straightforward, but gets rather cumbersome. We have to move all of those good alleles back into the modern varieties and that's
0: really the trick so you basically have signposts throughout the genome that you know where those genes are located and you can design molecular markers so you can design uh, a, a a like a test that allows you to identify that specific piece of of dna in that particular line and then you can see how they're inherited, right? Just by crossing these back into the industrial tomato types?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we use PCR. The same thing that they tried to convict O.J. Simpson on. Uh, very uh, very straightforward process. We have PCR that can define the good allele versus the bad allele. And then the process is just like building a jigsaw puzzle. It's moving each little piece from the old varieties into the modern varieties and showing that they then increase the levels of that compound xyz Uh, so it's 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 pushing pieces of the genome around using completely natural processes but uh, by using molecular markers these little signposts for the the good genes and the bad genes, um, we can basically reconstruct everything much quicker than Mendel could do. Um, So for example, you know, we're talking one in four for a single gene. One in four progeny will have the right combination. If you go to two genes, it's one in 16. If you go to three, it's one in 64. So it increases exponentially. Well, you can imagine if I've got six, seven, eight genes that then it's one in hundreds of thousands so it takes a long time for us to get those pieces moved around and of course the uh, complication is we're moving those pieces around in ways that don't affect the agricultural performance of the modern varieties so what we want to do is we want to precisely introduce little pieces of the genome back into the modern cultivars improving flavor but not destroying the the productivity of those varieties. It takes a long time. Uh, the molecular markers greatly speed it up but even then it still takes time.
0: Well the other nice part of the molecular marker is that you can look for it in a seedling so you don't have to grow that plant for three months to actually get a tomato that you can taste. That's, test. Right.
1: That's right. So we can take Ten thousand and identify the single individual that has the combination that we want, throw all the rest of them away, and then grow up one plant as opposed to ten thousand. So you can imagine a field full of ten thousand tomatoes walking through and picking out the one you want it 's a whole lot easier if we take a seed, the seedlings grind up the DNA, use our PCR analysis, and pick out the one that we want. And so how many genes do you think are contributing in in a major way? Um, We've identified, uh, there are about six or seven pathways that we want to control. And by understanding the biochemistry, how the plant makes those things, we can focus on what we would call the rate-limiting steps in each of those pathways. So in theory, we could have a huge impact on the tomato with six or seven genes. Uh, the fun part is we've got more than one gene that affect each of those pathways, and there's the potential for additivity. Uh, so that's that's going to be the real fun part of doing this as well. Okay, I've got two genes that impact lycopene synthesis. Uh, lycopene, the compound that's it has been Promoted as as being beneficial for your health, it gives the tomato the red flavor, or uh, the sorry, <laughs> the red color. Um, you know, more lycopene is better li- is is better for you. So, uh, if we have one gene, we can increase the amount of lycopene, let's say twenty percent. We've got a second gene that increases it another twenty percent. Uh, so, we have the potential to really positively impact both health benefits and flavor in these things when we start combining but i would say a a minimum of five to seven genes are going to have a really significant impact on flavor uh maybe 10 or 12 might have a huge impact on flavor
0: and you've made some really positive steps already though and tell us a little bit about your most recent uh releases or the, the ones that actually are available to be eaten
1: so, you know I think that the the commercial grower has a very high barrier for for introduction, and that is it has to be just as good as that modern tasteless tomato uh, in terms of its yield and its production, and then it has to give you flavor that 's a very high barrier to cross because uh, because we 're starting with heirloom varieties that really just aren 't very good at growing. And so what we've done is we've tried to take uh, an approach which is to get consumers what they want quicker, and that is to introduce things for the home garden. The, the reality is the home gardener really focuses more on quality than yield. They like lots of yield, but they really want flavor, and that's why they grow them. Tomatoes, the number one product that consumers grow in their gardens. Um, so what we're trying to do is to introduce varieties that have all of the flavor of the heirloom, but uh, but produce significantly more fruit, are easier for the, the consumer to grow, have that disease resistance, have a little more firmness, but all the flavor of the heirloom. And so what we've done is we've taken our very best Heirlooms, in terms of flavor, in terms of consumer response, and we've crossed those with a modern, high-yielding, disease-resistant variety, and we have we have hybrids that combine the best of both worlds. not all of them many of them we throw away they just don't work but through the process of elimination we've identified a few magical combinations that really have uh, and, and our consumer panels absolutely confirm this they taste just as good as the heirloom but produce two to three times more fruit and so we've released two varieties we call them garden gem and garden treasure we've got several more coming along that we think are going to be even better
0: that's great news. Because I've, I've had the Garden Gem, and it's a fantastic tomato. And as a guy who grows lots of tomatoes at home and eats tomatoes all year when I can, um, it, it's, really a, it's really great to have it available, just to have good tomatoes back again. And so can, if people can, who are listening can actually get these from you. Um, where, do, where would they do that?
1: So we've set up a system. Uh, We're trying to get uh, seed companies to to license them, and there are a couple of seed companies that have looked at our varieties. Unfortunately, they work at the pace of a glacier. Uh, They want to try them multiple years and multiple locations. Well, the reality is we've given these tomatoes... Now to over 2,000 individuals worldwide. I think we've hit 49 states and 35 countries that we've sent these tomatoes to, and people are coming back and telling us they love them. Uh, I at least on a dozen different occasions, people have come back and said the Garden Gem is the best tomato they've ever tasted in their lives, uh, which really spurs us on to do even more. Um, so to make them available, uh, what we've done is the university has set up uh, a website and people can make a donation. Uh, we have to charge $10 donation because that's the minimum the university will process on a credit card. Uh, and what we do is if you make a $10 donation to our research program and 100% of the money goes into the research uh, uh to develop these varieties um we send you two packets of one each of garden gem and garden treasure uh, as a gift to thank you for the contribution uh and so the you can just google me and get to my web page and find a link to uh to the donation site
0: and uh, what state have you not gotten it from
1: if anybody's listening to your podcast from north dakota you should be embarrassed, and you should immediately <laughs> donate to eliminate that blotch from your, your state's record. <laughs> the, the black
0: eye on the <laughs> – well, that's really good. I bet you get one. There's, there's got to be people up in Fargo who uh, like tomatoes, and I, I bet you get a couple from this um so that's really good where so where can people learn more about this or um you know you have a good presence on the web now and yep. and can you tell us about some of your places where people can read more or have some uh, or reach your social media contacts
1: yeah so we've described the tomatoes on my website there's a uh, one page of my website that describes these varieties we also have a facebook page for garden gem now and people are paying Posting all of the their results and uh, and uh, it's really been fun. Uh, you can you can learn a lot about the tomatoes. You can see pictures. You can see people's uh, uh, efforts to grow them uh, all on the Facebook page for Garden Gem,
0: and also on Twitter at CleLab.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't do Twitter, but uh, we have someone in the lab who's younger who does that for me. (laughs) Yeah, and and actually,
0: you get quite a bit of buzz on Twitter. It's pretty cool. I I follow your lab there, so I see it all the time. Good. Okay, so thank you so much for spending the time today, Harry. I really appreciate talking to you about this, and we'll be right back with the next part of Talking Biotech. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast that discusses how the newest technologies in traditional breeding and genetic engineering conspire to improve medical treatments as well as animal and plant products. The idea is to use our best tools to feed the needy and help the farmer, and do so with respect to our planet. The Talking Biotech Podcast is financed and produced 100% by Dr. Kevin Fulta and separate from his popular outreach workshops. If you'd like to help, please write a review on iTunes or tell a friend to listen in. With every episode, our numbers grow, and your listenership is truly appreciated, as moving innovation to application requires communication. So in this segment of Talking Biotech, it's a really exciting opportunity to really reinforce something that I've been talking about on the road quite a bit during my hiatus. And that is talking to farmers and uh, other producers about the importance to be talking about their operation in a very visible and public way. And uh, I stumbled upon or um, a beautiful example of this. Chelsea Boonstra and Chelsea she's here uh, visiting today from well via Skype um, from Meadows Manitoba. Hi Chelsea
2: Hi, how's it going Kevin?
0: It's going just great Um, (laughs) Really excited to have you on today. This is just right. And so where's Meadows Manitoba?
2: So uh, a lot of people don't exactly know where Manitoba is. So if you're looking from um, a USA standpoint, it's actually just north of North Dakota Um, It's about uh, 25 minutes away from Winnipeg, which is the capital city of our province.
0: Okay, and so w- tell me a little bit about your family's operation. What do you, what do you do on in Meadows, Manitoba?
2: So we um, are dairy and grain farmers. Uh, always have been. We've been expanding a lot since 2004. We milk around right now 700 purebred Holsteins and farm around 6,500 acres. So. Um, uh, doing that, so we grow all our own feed for our cows. So we grow alfalfa and corn, which are both used for silage, and then we do cash crop as well. So we grow uh, some wheat, canola, and soybeans, and I think that's pretty much it.
0: Okay, so you're a family farm. So you're 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 not one of the uh, the giant mega f- uh, corporate owned farms that uh, dominate the countryside, as we're told.
2: <laughs> no, not. Not at all. Um, I think the misconception a lot of people have is that, you know, as soon as you start having hired hands on your operation that, you know, oh, now like you're not doing any of the work, like you're never there. But the thing is, the reason we have hired hands is we are there, but sometimes we're just so busy doing other stuff on the farm that we just need people to help us out. So we, like all of us kids are all involved in the operation. Like, Feeding calves, going out to the fields, helping out. But I mean our dads are still in the barn, they're checking, and everybody knows exactly how to do everything around here. They're taught properly, but it's all family run. It's always been that way.
0: Yeah, it's uh it, so it's always been that way. So this is a this is several generations now that you've been in business, right?
2: Uh, yes. Right now we're in the third generation and eventually, hopefully the fourth.
0: Okay. So the main reason I wanted to talk to you was because you've accomplished something that is really stellar. And so you are a student at University of Manitoba, right? Yes, correct. And so what's your major there?
2: Um, well, I actually did start out in the degree program and I just realized it wasn't for me. I wanted a more hands-on approach on things as I knew eventually, you know, I did want to work in the industry, but I eventually did want to come home. So I switched to the diploma program and I will be graduating May and I am an agronomy major as there's a little bit more uh, job opportunities, but, uh, I did take some courses on, on dairy and all that stuff. So I did get to learn some things that I might not be able to at home.
0: And so as part of your curriculum, one of your um, assignments was to produce a video about, was it about your about your family farm or was it just to produce a video?
2: Uh, it was about your operations. So over the two years um, of this course, you're doing your farm books uh, pretty much all the time. You're keeping up to date with them. And so... At the end of your two years, you kind of go in front of a panel and they ask you questions, but the first thing they're going to see is about your operation. So uh, it doesn't matter if you're doing a case farm, which is a farm you're pretty much just given if you don't come from one, but I decided to do my own as this video project is something I was looking so forward to doing because I wanted to show all the the accomplishments that our family has made through the years. So that's how it all started.
0: Well, that's really great. So let's take a quick listen to... The video that's available on YouTube and I'll just play maybe a little bit from the beginning and the end, and then we'll come back and you can tell us a little bit about what we just heard. So here is Chelsea Boonstra's video on YouTube about her family's farm.
2: Boonstra Farms is a family owned business that originated in nineteen forty by my great grandfather Garrett, who is often called height, and was a recent immigrant from the Netherlands. Our farm is located just north of Meadows on Section 6131 West. Today the farm is owned and operated by my dad Rob and his brother Brian along with the help of the seven children who are all active in the operation as well as 25 hired hands. As of today we are milking 700 pure red Holsteins and farming around 6500 acres on mainly clay loam soils. The main crops grown on our operation are wheat, soybeans, canola, alfalfa, which is used for silage, and corn, which is also used for silage, but as well high moisture grain corn. I am enjoying the time learning and appreciating the wonderful life I've been able to have and experience growing up on our farm. You know what they say, home is where the heart is, and this will forever be my home.
0: Well, that's really nice. I, Chelsea, you know, you, you can tell that I edited that, that really it's just kind of the beginning and the end. I wanted to leave something there for others to look at or to think about. But it's, it's a very nice audio piece, but it's uh, basically just a running montage of individual pictures that you took on the farm. And, and that's the basic whole setup of the entire video. So this video has really been doing very well online, and I saw on Facebook you have something like 13,000 views of this yes. video. How long ago did you put it up?
2: I actually put it up uh, Thursday night, so I forget what night that was exactly. That was the 11th, actually. I put it up at about 10.30, and by the next morning, there was already around like, 2,000, 3,000 views, and I actually went to go show my teachers at school, as, and I, I said, like, I'd didn't think this video was going to get this much. Like I said, it's almost at like 3,000 views. And I mean, a couple of days later, I'm still getting shares and responses.
0: And, and this was, and so just to give the listener a little bit of context, um, this was maybe the 11th was Thursday. And yes, today is the 14th. So really just you're looking at three days, you've got 13,000 visitors to that, to that um, video and, uh, and lots of other distribution. And we're going to do a little experiment here is that um, this is the first uh, episode of Talking Biotech coming back from hiatus. And um, I really want to uh, follow up with a big social media push on your video because I would like to see how broadly this can be shared. Because I've been doing a lot of speaking with farm audiences and saying, you know, you need to be telling people about what you do. And, and one of the things I heard, I don't remember who said it, but if um, if you're describing what you do, you don't have to defend what you do. And there's this idea of transparency and, and you know, not just... Uh, in In what the operation does, but you know there's so many misconceptions about especially on animal farms what happens and it's really great to see a video like yours and how you care about the animals and how you uh you know treat everything and the family being involved and um it, it's been really it was really really nice to watch and what has been generally some of the response you've received
2: uh well, actually, one of the ones that's hit me really hard is actually my hairdresser, which is ironic I had only met her once and she had watched it the one morning, and she said she had thought about it all day, went home, watched it again the next day at work, thought about it all day, and was probably going to go home and watch it again. I've received so many positive responses, and, you know, I'm from, a, like, a small community. I was just expecting, you know, some people to see it from school and, you know, like, some people sharing it a little bit, but I didn't think this many people would like be making it go this viral. Like, I mean, 13,000 isn't that much like on a broad spectrum. But I mean, me coming from this small of a town, like it's it's a big thing.
0: And, and why do you think that it, there is so much interest in a video like yours?
2: I think it's because there's a lot of passion. I mean, I'm, a, I'm young, but I mean... Deep down, though the way it was worded, I think a lot of people they get sort of feel and be there in the video, like they were almost sort of on the operation learning. I mean, there's I'm showing exactly how it is every day. I'm I'm not lying. I'm telling the truth, and I think that's a lot of the things that people want to see.
0: I noticed on the Facebook caption that went along with this, it said something like, "We really want to start changing the minds." Of those who may be against what we do Mm -hmm. and how much of that is there do you really feel that there's a misconception on the farm and maybe that this video can help that
2: well I don't think it's necessarily just our farm in general but I know definitely over the past couple months we uh, there's been a lot of negative um, posts and videos about the dairy industry specifically And it's really, really heartbreaking to see because when you wake up in the morning and you get excited to go out there and see the little guys and, you know, they're excited to see you, it's just heartbreaking to see everybody bashing your industry when, you know, you spend hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to make sure they have proper bedding, feed, housing. I mean, we don't do it just because it's making us money, but it's something we honestly love to do. It's like any job, if you love what you're doing, it's not just a job anymore, it's it's something way more than that, and it's like farming. You can't just go do a job just because it makes you money. You have to love what you do, especially farming. So I really hope that this video can start showing people. I mean, even though you, even though we are a little bit larger, like we still totally care about everything here.
0: And a lot of growers or, or you know, producers would say that they're hesitant to get in because of the kind of time it takes to invest in this kind of um, either this kind of media or the um, social media promotion that goes along with it. What was your experience? Did this take a lot of time? And was that time really worth the response?
2: Well, um, I started this back in December. I've actually been... You know, I've always been into taking lots of pictures and videos. Uh, all my friends actually usually like to make a lot of fun of me because I love taking pictures of my cows. They are they're my world. That's what I get excited to go see every day. And so I've had a lot of these videos. And when this video project came up, I was so excited. You know, I was started over Christmas break and I I worked on it quite a bit. And the first time I showed my dad, he he just couldn't believe it. He's like, "You have to share this on Facebook." He's like, "This is so great." And you know, I'm like, oh, "Okay." You know, like when it's done, I will. And when I ended up sharing it and I seen the response, you know, especially the response I've gotten, it's just, it's heartwarming just to see that so many people are just so proud of what you've done. I mean, I've gone out to the store and I've had compliments and my parents have got compliments from friends and they're just saying, you know, like my parents would be so proud of me. It actually, uh, it brings tears to my parents and grandparents eyes, actually the video.
0: It's so heartfelt and it really just shows what you do. And, you know, I I hate to be the guy making predictions, but just how well-spoken you are and what a good representative you are for the industry and what you do, I wouldn't be surprised that this thing gets a lot of traction because it it just is, you hit the nail on the head. And it's a perfect layout for what, and I hope that you don't mind if I show this in some of my talks, at least little parts of it.
2: Oh, no, totally go ahead. I honestly think more the merrier. I would... I want this to get out as far as possible and be as popular as possible.
0: Well, with that in mind, is it also on YouTube or other media areas where you can uh, see this?
2: Uh, we will be sharing it on YouTube. It's not on there yet. Uh, just been kind of waiting. I, I, did actually start my own facebook page yesterday i'm hoping to get more followers where i will be uploading pictures and videos kind of showing what we do every day on the operation and explain you know why we do it so that more people can share those as well and kind of tell their friends you know like you know i've heard that this is what they do but in reality like a dairy farmer showed this and you know this is why they do it
0: and that's at what forever farm girl you bet okay so and that's on facebook are you also on twitter
2: Uh, Yeah, but that's with just my regular account, Seaboon6.
0: Seaboon6. And, um, okay, that's really great. So, Chelsea, if you had any advice for other, uh, other farmers, growers, whoever, you know, who have their business in agriculture who are thinking about getting involved in media for social media, what would be your advice?
2: I honestly think, you know, just take pictures, tell the truth, and just do it. Don't worry what other people are going to think, you know. I've always been big into posting stuff, and at first I was a little bit like, oh, you know, my friends are going to make fun of me for posting this, you know, whatever. But, I mean, after the response and hearing what some people have to say, you're going to feel quite accomplished at the end. And you're going to start feeling like, I mean, a little goes a long way, and you're starting to feel like you're making a little bit of a difference. So, I mean, honestly, just totally do it.
0: Well, I think that's great advice, and I think you really did put down the first step in this process, and I have a prediction. I think you're going to really be surprised at how much traction that video gets, and I think you'll be surprised at how many more that are like it when we look back on this in a year from now. So, uh, best wishes to you and your family and your operation, and you know, feel free to keep me posted if there's ever any news. I'd really love to talk to you again, okay? Sounds good. Well, that's uh, episode number 24 is now in the box. Uh, first one of 2016 and the first one back from a long hiatus. That was uh, quite interesting. But thank you so much to Harry Clee for joining me and for Kelsey Boonstra to join me on the podcast. Um, and thank you for listening. And thank you for all of the really kind words and encouragement that I received during that time off. It was a lot more... Um, Detail than I'll bother to get into, but it was a challenging time and a difficult time in a lot of ways. But in a lot of, uh, I think mostly we have a much stronger platform today to really educate people about food and where it comes from and the technologies that are used around it, as well as the families and farms that take the time to do it for us. And uh, and that's really the point of this entire podcast. Uh, It's the access to agricultural innovation. We want farmers, the developing world, to have access to the newest tools that technology can give us and for people to be able to freely select the technologies they choose because they work best for them. If you have questions, send them to me at TalkingBiotechPodcast at gmail.com or you can also leave it on the Talking Biotech Facebook page which I think is operational now finally. So, once again, thank you to everybody, and we'll talk to you again next week.
2: Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews
0: raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science.
2: I had to feed Kaz yesterday morning, and, yeah, it got to, like, minus, like, 45 here yesterday, so we, uh, we froze out there, but, oh, well.